I believe personally that forgiveness could very well be the single most difficult thing that a Christian is called to do. It's probably the hardest one character trait to develop. Forgiveness. Which is why, in Luke 17, it is to that, that idea of forgiving endlessly, the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. I mean, think about this, church. It wasn't to their need for a building. It wasn't their need for an offering. It wasn't to their need to, to think in large terms as a visionary. The disciples said, increase our faith. It was to this one Concept that if your brother sins against you seven times in a day, you should forgive him. It is to that statement the disciples said what? Lord, increase our faith. Why? Because they were thinking what you and I are probably thinking. That's the hardest thing to do. Forgive? I might have one in me. Maybe two. But endlessly? And so we're going to begin our 50-day adventure in Luke 17 with perhaps the most fundamental, foundational trait that we as disciples must develop. And that is the ability to forgive. Take your Bibles, turn to Luke 17, would you? I trust that while you're finding Luke 17, you will also find a pen and get your teaching tool from your worship folder. And let's take some notes here in a little bit. I'll have you write some things down as well, but... We're going to talk about forgiveness. And I hope that as God stirs your heart through different portions of Scripture, through different illustrations, that you will not be afraid to respond. I, I trust that this week will be a week in which you will obey God in regards to forgiveness. Can I share with you something that I've, I, this week I looked back at uh, the last 18 or so, 20 years of ministry. Um, and I asked myself, the spiritual breakthroughs that I've had, I mean, the real, real big ones, the ones where God just seemed to really break me down and uh, give me a, a fresh, new, correct, biblical glimpse of who He was, and, and then that motivation really stays with you. There might be a couple, three of those in the last 18, 20 years for me. You know what? I've, I've discovered a common link in every one of those, that all of them were somehow linked to an issue of forgiveness in my life. Now, that's just a personal experience, but I think it does lend some support to what we're going to share today. I know that as a 22-year-old youth pastor in my very first church, uh, I won't go into all the detail, but there was a, a situation that could have been very hurtful. But you know what? Instead of harboring that and some things that happened and were said, I just said, you know what? And there's more important things than to worry about this first year. I didn't know what to expect, and they didn't either. We'll just we'll move on. And I can recall other situations, and when God just really seemed to break through in my life, there was this this underlying willingness to forgive what was going on. I'll tell you this: in our marriage, our greatest marriage breakthroughs have always been linked to forgiveness. When she's willing to give me a second chance. Excuse me, a 20-second chance. <laughs> All the guys should say. You know, I'm fin you know, it's true. Vice versa. Our communication, our intimacy, all those things seem to work better when there is a clear slate. 
I'm just telling you guys. I think life experience and the scripture they will show us that forgiveness is so fundamental and yet it's the it's one of the hardest things we're called to do. So you can expect some tension over the next few minutes, okay? But will you allow God's word to speak to us and will you let the seed plant in your mind and perhaps maybe God's got us just on the on the uh, on the tip of a spiritual breakthrough for your life. One where you see him for who he really is and then begin to live that out in your life apart from Sunday even. Luke 17, chapter 1. Follow along with me in your Bibles. You have it there in front of you. Jesus said to His disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. In other words, here's what kind of what He's saying. Guys, it's, it's, it's inevitable... That things that cause us to sin and that offend us, it's inevitable that they're going to happen. What you don't want to do is be the person through whom they come. You don't want to be the person that's always causing the offense. That's just not a good place to be. And he says here that if that were you and you were to lead a little one astray, it'd be better if you were to experience a torturous, uh, unthinkable death. Now, the word little ones here, it may refer to children. It may refer to that act of, of someone who knowingly and sinfully leads a child astray. But there's no real textual proof that that's the only thing he's referring to. It may actually refer, and some scholars believe, to the idea of little ones in a spiritual sense. And on the heels of his talk to the Pharisees, who were known, watch this, who were known for intentionally leading God's children astray, weren't they? I mean, just read of Christ's rebuke to them, how they placed the burdens on people, never offered to help, how they were the blind, leading the blind, how they uh, were notorious for, for demanding certain things legally and spiritually that weren't even biblical. He could very well be speaking here of, of the spiritual sense of leading people astray intentionally. And he says, if that's you, if you're the person that leads folks astray, that causes sin... It would be better if you were to die a torturous death. And then he says, so watch yourselves. In other words, that's not the kind of person we want to be. If that were to happen, though, if you were to offend someone, if you were to be involved in a sin, look at the next verse. Verse 3, he says, if this happens, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, that part seems okay. I mean, we can do that. Can't we, Josh? We can forgive once. I mean, you do something wrong and we talk about it. There's a rebuke, whichever way it goes. And then there's repentance and forgiveness. That's a good deal. We can do that. But watch this next phrase. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent. At that point, you lower the boom on him. No, the Bible says two words, forgiven. Now, I want to share something with you. If that were to happen. Now, follow me this. Follow me on this. The truth is, if that were to happen, somebody's playing a game somewhere. If seven times in a day, I were to go to my wife and say, honey, I did it again. She's like, okay, what's the deal here? This is time number five. I mean, it's a hyperbole here. Seven times in a day would indicate someone's not even genuine. They're not even trying. And even in those kind of situations where you feel like someone's playing games with you, Watch this. If there's repentance, we are called to forgive. It is to this 
call. The disciples said in verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. And can we all agree with that? Can we not nod our heads and say, wow, if someone's playing games with me, if I feel like there's this constant sinning, repenting, forgiving, sinning, repenting, forgiving, you bet I would need more faith. He says in verse 6, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. That's interesting because he's saying to the guys, he says, guys, listen, you're trying to get more faith. I just want you to have genuine faith. In fact, it only takes a little bit of faith. The right kind of faith, even in small amounts, could actually, and he's using hyperbole here, could uproot a tree. And these, these uh, mulberry trees, they were kind of known for having deep root systems and probably living in the hundreds of years. Some were known to live five, six hundred years. And so they're thinking, wow, a little bit of faith could take a tree of that stature and put it in the sea? Well, first of all, God's got better things to do with your faith than replant trees. Amen? He's saying this. If a little bit of faith could do that, then a little bit of faith can, can help you forgive endlessly. Even 70 times 7. Forgiveness is not impossible if you just have a little bit of faith. The right kind of faith. Then he tells a story. Verse 7. And this story fits, by the way. A lot of folks take it out and they say, what's I got to do with forgiveness? Watch this story. He says, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along here, servant, now and sit down to eat? No, instead he would say this, prepare my supper and get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. And then you may eat and drink. In other words, a servant that just does his job wouldn't be expecting praise and spectacular applause when he comes in. That's his job. Instead, the servant would do his job. He would come in, the master would say, great, you did your job. Now finish your job here at the house and fix my supper. When I'm done, then you can eat. In other words, look what he says here in verse 9. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? I think that phrase refers back to the idea of forgiving endlessly. What are the disciples told to do? Forgive 70 times 7. And when we do that, we should not expect spectacular, uh, incredible praise. You know why? Because that's what we're called to do. We are a forgiving bunch of people. That's what we do. We forgive. He says, so also you, when you have done everything you were told to do. There it is again. When you have forgiven, 70 times 7. When your faith has called you to forgive an endless amount of times. You should say, and this is very, this stings. We're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Wow. That's powerful to me. You mean, Todd, if, if I stand up and forgive someone who wronged me over and over, shouldn't I expect some, some lofty praise? And shouldn't I be raised up as like the, the best Christian of the 21st century? No. That's just normal operating procedure. It's standard policy to forgive endlessly. But see, we tend to think that when we forgive and we escape the martyr syndrome and suddenly we're now, you know, Mr. Compassion or Mrs. Graciousness, that we should be lifted up into some pedestal because of our wonderful Christ-like character. Now, I know I'm being a little facetious here, but I want to say to you the truth is 
That's been the expectation all along. He forgives, so we forgive. Are you with me? Let's see if I can paint this picture for you. I was watching the Colorado Rockies play the Los Angeles Dodgers this past week. Not in person. I wish I was, but I was just watching it um, via uh, the uh, media. So, and near the end of the game, the Dodgers, I believe, um, I forget which team was running the bases, but there was some men on and they hit a, a line drive out in the outfield and the guy from second was going to round third and make it home and the outfielder would have got it and threw it home. It was going to be a close play. And, and one of the catchers, I, I'm not sure if it's the Dodgers or the Rockies, but the catcher's blocking the plate. And he's going to make sure the guy from third to score is going to be a close play. Here comes the throw. Here comes the runner. And the intersection is going to be the perfect time. And the ball gets to the catcher. And the guy running from third just waylays the catcher. I mean, as soon as the ball hits the mitt, boom. The third, the guy running hits the catcher. He tumbles over, falls to the ground, flips over. And the runner's, you know, trying to find the play. And the catcher holds the ball up after he ends the ground. He's like, oh, and he holds the ball up. And the crowd erupts like, Wow! And then the catcher just pops up, tosses the ball to the grass infield, and goes to the dugout. He doesn't take a bow. He doesn't come back for a, uh, what, do they, uh, what do they call those things? Um, yeah, a curtain call. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't tip his fat. He just goes to the dugout. You know why? Because that's his job, to get runners out who come home. Why would we give him a hand just because it was more dramatic? That's what he's paid to do. Are you with me? Now, I don't want our coach to like, dude! That was awesome. And you turned a flip and you got that guy out. You held on the ball. But the truth is, that's what he's supposed to do. And that catcher, I remember hearing that and watching thinking, you know what? That's the attitude I should have about forgiving people. Just because I do it over and over, just because you forgive endlessly doesn't mean that we should suddenly get an extra round of applause. You know what? That's the expected nature of following Christ, that we just forgive. And I thought all week, you know, I want to be like that catcher. Who even in the dramatic moments, even when it gets the when the fanfare is high perhaps, and maybe the people around want to increase the intensity, I just want to make sure everybody knows, well, this is no big deal. This is what we as disciples do. Why is everyone making a big deal about it? This is standard procedure. So this week, keep this story in mind. That as you're called upon to forgive, the enemy might make you think, man, you are really special. You're really up there. You should say to that in a humble way, it's not out of the ordinary. This is what we as Christians do. We forgive and we forgive and we forgive. And in doing that, we begin to develop the first and foremost foundational trait of disciples that are forgiving endlessly. Let me show you this text in kind of a process because I want you to write this down. And this will happen to each of us every day this week. I guarantee you. Let me show you this text in a process. It will be behind me on the screen. So write this down, would you? This is kind of a five-step process of these ten verses. This will happen to us every day, I promise, in a small way or maybe in a large way. This will happen to every person in this room. What happens is there's some type of sin, and then there's a rebuke. Now, these are kind of big words. I know most couples don't say, honey, I need to have a rebuke with you. You know, I need to rebuke you. Now, maybe you do, I don't know. But typically, these things come out in different terms, and they come out in different ways, but this happens. There's a sin issue. Something is done that's wrong, an offense. And then there's a, a rebuke issue or it's brought to light. And then there's a, hopefully a repentance. And then here's the crossroads all of us come to. And I think we come to every day. Will I forgive this person or not? It could be about a little thing. 
it could be about a ginormous thing. But all of us come to this crossroads, what I call faith's fork in the road. Will you forgive? And then look at that as your duty. This is, this is what we do. It's my obligation. I'm not considered special because I just done what I was told. Or will you maybe take the resentful route? Or will you maybe assume that you should be given spectacular praise because you simply did what's expected? You see what I'm saying, guys? Really, the, the steps three and four, that area in the middle is where we bog down. Will we choose to forgive? And if we don't, will we harbor the resentment and the bitterness that brings? Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, Todd, um, what is forgiveness? And we'll leave this up there for a little bit. What is forgiveness? Let's say I come to the third step and, the, and we worked it out and they repent or I repent. What's forgiveness? Forgiveness is that willingness to let that person, watch this now, watch this, off your hook. You catch that? Watch me here. It's not necessarily this blind eye to consequences. Life may deal something to someone who wronged you, who did something uh, uh, offensive. Life may deal its own set of consequences. But forgiveness is letting them off your hook. You know, when you say, well, um, now that to help you pay for that, I'm going to actually do this again today and tomorrow. I'm going to remind you, I'm going to hound you, I'm going to make sure you never forget what you did to me. And we keep them on our hook day after day. And we jab. We make sure they know what that you know what they did. You see, forgiveness is not necessarily them off legal hooks, so to speak. The law may have its own set. It's letting them off our hook, and the willingness to say, you know what, I don't have to have the score even based on my terms. That's forgiveness, and that's hard, because you know what's instinctively within all of us, the desire to make sure it's what even. No one likes to lose, especially in America. You want the score to be even, and we want to win. So this issue is very difficult. We're talking about forgiveness. Letting someone off our hook, so to speak. Giving them a clean opportunity when they repent. To say, you know what? We can, we can, we can start again. Some things in your kit this week will help you with this. There's some memory verses. There's some devotionals. There's some exercises for your family that will help you drive home this point about what it means to forgive. This process will happen in your family probably every single day. I encourage you to live out Luke 17. Even when it's six times, seven times, even if it gets to 70 times, seven times, forgive. Go to the mat of forgiveness and wrestle it out. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, Todd, I get the point. I'm supposed to forgive. But I want you to answer a question for me. I want you to tell me why. That's a good question. Because unless we're motivated to do something, you know, let's see the reason why it becomes kind of like you know, church rhetoric. You know, we've heard this before. It's the same old thing. But I want to, so I want to answer that question this morning. I want to show you clearly why you need to forgive. Why so much is at stake and why it's very important that you not avoid this process and why you choose forgiveness and then choose the, the, the SOP version of it as well. Okay? And there's a story in 2 Corinthians that really highlights this. So take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians for a moment. Let me accent our text in Luke with some verses in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. A little story is tucked away in this, in this epistle, in this book, 
that tells us about forgiveness and how important it really is. There's just maybe five, six, seven verses here. But they are really potent. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I want you to put your finger on verse 5. This story explains why we forgive, alright? Are you there? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now to set this up, I want to share with you the background of this story, okay? In the church at Corinth, listen very carefully. In the church at Corinth, there was apparently a, a person who caused a, an offense, who sinned. Well, it, we don't know what that sin was. Some scholars believe it may have been the sin mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, which was uh, a moral situation, incest. Some believe it may have been adultery. Uh, others believe it may have been the sin where they were taking each other to court. We don't know exactly. The text doesn't say. But we do think Paul is referencing a former situation in which a sin was committed in this church. Now, what are they going to do about it? Well, that's what Paul is writing about. Look what he says. 2 Corinthians 5. And everyone focus real carefully and, and avoid distractions. And, and let's watch what the Scriptures here say. This is very important that you understand the, the why of forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 2.5 If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. It's kind of wordy here. But what he's saying is this. He said, this person that sinned, it wasn't necessarily against one person or against me. It's, it's, it's to this church. This situation probably affects all of us, he's saying. Look at verse 6. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. That's a direct reference to church discipline. Are you with me? Apparently, the majority inflicted or they in, uh, um, actually engaged in church discipline and they corrected and rebuked the man, and he repented. And Paul says here, it was sufficient. Look what he says next. Verse 7. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You know, there's a place where punishment can have an adverse effect. Isn't that right, parents? You can go too far. And when you're trying to breed repentance, what happens is you breed anger. The Bible calls it exasperating our children. And so you get the opposite effect. You know what? This is true in this church too. Paul said, listen, you disciplined this situation. Now, instead, I want you to forgive and comfort. The same judicial word is used. In fact, I believe based on this text, listen very carefully, it is as biblical and proper for a church to actually corporately forgive someone as it is for a church to discipline someone. Now, you know, it's, it's kind of common for, for churches to talk about church discipline. Especially young churches. Every church I know starts off with this desire to be the purest church in the, on the face of the earth, you know. And they're going to discipline everybody. And then um, that sometimes seems to wane and, and people lose their courage and they seem to sometimes get a little fearful. And, and I've noticed in those conversations, you know what? Everyone loves talking about church discipline, but I have not known anybody talk about church forgiveness. And yet it's the same passage in the same context. It would be just as appropriate. Let's say someone in our church was under discipline for intentional, willful, ongoing sin. Let's say that we went to them one-on-one, then two-on-one, so to speak, and then the elders, and they just said, I will not repent. And so we disciplined that person. Did you know that when they repent, it would be just as biblical for this body of believers to call another meeting and say, by the way, our dear brother Josh, who was under church discipline, has repented. And so now, we judiciously, judicially and corporately extend to him church forgiveness. So what happened? You know, earlier, Josh is off the church hook, so to speak. 
So, in other words, you don't need to bring this up to Josh when you're at the cafe. That's kind of what would happen. You with me? It would be just as appropriate to make sure our church knows that forgiveness happened corporately and officially as much as it would be the discipline process. But we don't see that much. And I think that's one reason churches are at a stalemate and they seem kind of powerless. You know why? Because, man, they're really into the judging side. And forgive me here, and I'm a pretty conservative, hard-nosed guy. A lot of you may know that. We're really into that side of it. But you know what? When people do repent, we seem to not even worry at all about the forgiveness side. I would like to see First Family, yes, be, a, be zealous for holiness in its members. But also, as members repent and, then, and, and make things right, man, let's be zealous for forgiveness. And for, and for saying, hey, they're back in right standing and celebrating that. Amen? It's a balance. And when we get this whole forgiveness issue right, I believe it begins to unleash the power from God that a lot of churches don't know. So how do you say that, Todd? Why do you say that? Well, look at the next part of the text. Look what he says here. He says, I want you to reaffirm your love for Him and and forgive and comfort Him. That's in verse 8. He says, this is the reason I wrote to you, was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. That's an awesome verse, isn't it? What's the one litmus test to see if you're really obedient? It's forgiveness. It's not Sunday school attendance. It's not if you're in the worship team, if you fill up the chair every week, or how much you give. The real test to see if you're obedient in all things is have you forgiven the people in your life. That's awesome. And then he says in verse 10, If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. He's trying to lead the way here in forgiveness. And will I have forgiven if there was anything to forgive? I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Now watch this next verse. Here's why he forgave and why we must forgive. In order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. The truth is, though, a lot of us are unaware of his schemes. And his greatest scheme is to keep you at a place of unforgiveness. Why? Because when he can keep you at a place of unforgiveness, watch this. He has outwitted you. That's what the text is here. The King James word is the best word in the translation. It's the word advantage. The phrase goes like this, that we should forgive so that Satan does not get an advantage over us. Now, when someone's got an advantage, they haven't necessarily beat me down and buried me, have they? They haven't condemned me to hell, but they just are a leg up on me, aren't they? They're a little closer to winning than I am. And the best way to illustrate this is tennis. I mean, in tennis. Let's say you're, 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 you know, you're forehand to forehand, you've got backhands you're playing, and it gets to be a deuce game, right? Which means it's tied. The next one to score a point is considered to have what? Right. You guys should all be Wimbledon announcers. That was a nice job. You know, they had that neat way of saying advantage, right? Now, has that person won the tennis match? But are they closer to winning? Now, hang on to your chairs and listen very carefully. When you and I refuse to forgive, it gives Satan an edge. He's closer to winning in our church and in your life than God is. It won't damn you to hell, you're right. It won't beat you down and bury you. But it will frustrate you and, and dog you and make you feel like there's this wall, this cloud, this, this pillar. I just can't seem to get through. Because he's outwitted you. He's outsmarted you. And he's just got an advantage on you day after day. Why? Because you've chosen 
to be unforgiving. In fact, I believe this so strongly in this text. I think this is one of the reasons a lot of people have uh, they have these uh, spiritual existences that are just kind of dry, and they don't know why. No one else knows why, and they're content with just like kind of getting by spiritually. I completely disagree with getting by spiritually. I think spiritual health and vibrancy, I don't mean a get in this that you don't have any problems, but I mean a, a deep down contentment where Paul said, whether I'm prospering or whether I'm imprisoned, I've learned to be content and I will rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. I mean that kind of deep down spiritual contentment that, you know what? Man, nothing's going to steal what's going on in my life. I think the reason a lot of us don't know anything about that is because we have severe forgiveness issues. And they have clogged up our spiritual drain system, so to speak. And the water doesn't run, doesn't flow. I have folks say to me, about every week, they'll say, God, I just feel like there's just some, I just can't seem to break through. Or I feel like there's this wall in front of me. Or I sense like there's this cloud hanging over my head. You know what I ask them now? I ask them one question, typically, as we talk and as we explore some of their life. I'll say, is there anybody in your life that you're holding a grudge against? Anybody. I mean, anybody at all that just have said, I'm not going to forgive them. Anybody. The vast majority of the time, they'll say, well, yeah. And they'll tell me the stories of their life. They were wronged here, wronged there. And so they've held on to those wrongs. You know what that's done? It's just blocked God's work and power in their life. You see, being unwilling to forgive is like locking yourself in prison. You shut out God's power in system, so to speak. And the water doesn't run, doesn't flow. I have folks say to me, about every week, they'll say, Todd, I just feel like there's just some... I just can't seem to break through. I feel like there's this wall in front of me. I sense like there's this cloud hanging over my head. You know what I ask them now? I ask them one question, typically, as we talk and as we explore some of their life. I say, is there anybody in your life that you're holding a grudge against? Anybody. I mean, anybody at all that just have said, I'm not going to forgive them. Anybody. The vast majority of the time, They'll say, well, yeah. And they'll tell me the stories of their life. They were wronged here, wronged there. And so they've held on to those wrongs. You know what that's done? It's just blocked God's work and power in their life. You see, being unwilling to forgive is like locking yourself in prison. You shut out God's power. Gotten used to and they're acclimated to how things run. It's been like this for years, Todd. What's the big deal? And they've never thought beyond. You know, if we could just forgive, if we could get beyond this by forgiving, we could see a whole new level of spirituality. But until that point, Satan will continue to outwit us. He'll continue to have an advantage over us. So I bring you back to a very basic trait of true disciples. They forgive endlessly. Even when it seems like you can't and you don't want to, you forgive. How, Todd? You say, Lord, increase my faith. <laughs> Amen? Are we any better than disciples? If they saw that very difficult, if they sense they need more faith for that, shouldn't we? 
Man, it should be our prayer every day. God, I need the faith to forgive. That's the kind of faith we need. Forgiveness. You'll be called upon every day to do it. And if you refuse, you're shutting down spiritual power available to you. But if you'll forgive, if you'll forgive, God will clear away the cobwebs, unplug the drain. And you'll know uh, God in a, in, a, in a way you've never known Him. Guys, listen very carefully. You say, why is this so fundamental to my spiritual walk? Why is, why is forgiveness so foundational to discipleship? Watch this. It's in forgiveness, I believe, it's in forgiveness that we exemplify one of the most basic traits about God. I mean, what does God do? He forgives people. I mean, what do you think the cross is all about? An angry God wanting to punish His Son? You think Calvary's about some bored man upstairs looking for something better to do? So, hey, I'll send my son to live with humans for 33 years and see what they do to him. I mean, guys, let it sink in. God is about forgiveness. His whole redemptive plan for, for centuries is so that lost people will believe and, and what? And be forgiven. And when His children suddenly turn away from that most basic trait, what does it say to a world? Yeah, like you belong to God. And it shuts off the power at the very beginning. It's the height of spiritual racism. To embrace forgiveness for me and then to say, oh, by the way, I'm not dare going to pass it on. You see, that's why forgiveness is so fundamental to your existence as a disciple. And every day that you and I, that we choose not to forgive someone because they wronged us, or because it's not even, or I won't forget that. We choose not to be like Christ in the most basic way possible. There are people in this room, and they could stand up and testify, and I'm not going to ask them to, but I think they probably would. There are people in this room right now who in recent months have experienced the joy of forgiveness. I know there's some people in this room right now that have gone back 30 and 40 years to contacts and relationships and made things right in the last several months. You know why? Because their spiritual vibrancy was that important. And I do think also they were thinking, I don't want to be the weak link at First Family Church. I think God's been setting people in our church up in a good way for this whole 50-day adventure. I mean, what good is the rest of the 49 days if we don't first and foremost solve any of our relational issues going on and, and deal with them and forgive. And what good is it if we give and if we serve and if we witness and if we read? If we're still harboring a, a heart of bitterness, it's just, it's just motionless. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's of no value. It's a big zero when it comes to reward time. Because our heart isn't right. And that's why this morning, I, I'm not worried about um, your wallet or where you're signed up on the serving chart. Or if you're giving, you know, uh, this or that. You know what I really like to ask? Is, is, there a, is there a pocket of bitterness in that heart of yours that's causing God's power to be diminished in your life? Has it given Satan an edge? If so, as your pastor, I ask you to forgive that person. Can I be any more clear than that? As your pastor... I call you 
to be like Jesus Christ and forgive. But you don't know how bad it hurt, Todd. You don't know all they did. That's exactly right. I don't. But you can forgive in pain. You can. When Christ hung on the cross, what a, uh, he said seven statements. At least three of those statements were statements of forgiveness. And he said them with the nails in his wrist, him gasping for breath. He said, Father, forgive them. You can forgive in the middle of your pain. And you can forgive even if they don't respond. I don't know where they are, Todd, or what they say. I'm not sure they're going to accept it. Who cares? Forgiveness is a one-way street. When Christ hung on the cross, what did He say? Father, forgive them. Did He say, now, it's your turn. Answer back, please. No. He simply exhibited and demonstrated forgiveness. And so I hope that all the excuses are being knocked out from under us. And we're seeing that forgiveness is a fundamental trait that we must pursue. Otherwise, we live a life and, and, and they're part of a church that's just kind of like dry. You know why? Because we, we, we refuse to be like Christ in the most basic way. Just jot this reference down and I'll move on and be done. Ephesians 4.32 As a kid, you learn this verse when your parents are trying to teach you to be kind. Remember? But we forget the last part of the verse. The verse goes like this, Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another. And if you know it, you can say along with me. Tender-hearted, and then what? Forgiving one another. Watch this. Even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. The whole point of that verse is, hey guys, as you're interacting in your in your relationships, just forgive because hey, that's what God did for Christ's sake. We have to forgive, and we have to forgive endlessly. I suspect there's some people here this morning. As I've been talking the last several minutes, and it's gotten this face has gotten more clear that God's probably brought a face to your mind. And it was blurry about 15, 20 minutes ago, but as I've talked more about forgiveness, man, you're like, I don't know who I gotta forgive. And that's like a full color portrait now in your brain, isn't it? You're like, Todd, can you hurry and get done? Well, yeah, I can get done. But I want you to forgive. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot at first family at stake. There's a lot in your life at stake. Will you forgive? Let me show you a picture of a guy that forgave. And then we'll close. This picture is, uh, it's hard to see, I know, but you probably don't know who this man is. In fact, I wouldn't think you would. Uh, but if I tell you his name, you'll know. At least you'll know of him. You'll consider him famous. This is Adolf Coors IV. His great, is it great-great-grandfather or great-grandfather? But one of his grandfathers, great-great-great-whatever, was the uh, founder and the, uh, of Coors Brewing Company. And uh, he was in line, of course, to take over. And uh, I don't know what distance he is from Pete Coors, who now is the head guy, but somewhere these, all these Coors brothers are, are running this brewery. Well, uh, Adolf Coors IV was in line to be that, that president, that, that, that big dude. And um, he was a sophomore in high school and was kind of in the running. He was just, you know, being trained and groomed to be the man. And his father was kidnapped and murdered, Adolf Kors III. And uh, he never came home from work one day. And for seven months, his family never knew, never knew his whereabouts. Seven months after his murder, they got a call from the authorities that they found the man's body. It was 
Adolf Kors III. And he was left to finish high school alone with a lot of anger and bitterness. He says for the next 20 years, he said, man, that hatred and that bitterness made me a very motivated man. He said, I became the best Marine. I became a karate master. I would skydive. I was the best businessman. I was into Wall Street. He said, man, I couldn't find enough to do. Occupy my time. He said, I was going to be the youngest CEO of Coors Brewery. I was going to be the man. He ended up in New York for a while, then over to Golden, Colorado. And he said he began to get in the system. He worked his way from the bottom up. And he said he got to be really near the top. And he was working three and four days straight, days and nights. And he said his wife was about to leave him. He had one little boy. He said, on the outside, my life looked great. But he said, I was a wreck. He said he left one Thursday to drive home. Finally, after several days at the office and, and just you know, day and night, he said he fell asleep and had a wreck. All he remembers is going off the road, and he says, I don't remember a thing after that. He said, I was toast. He spent two years in rehabilitation. During those two years, he took a long look at his life. And he said, what has this type of business got me into? He said, what's going on with my life? He said, what's, what's wrong with me? And he kept coming back to this hatred he had for this person that murdered his father. Well, God began to cross his path with some other individuals, and in the course of time, after those two years, Adolf Kors IV became a Christian. Well, he distanced himself from the company, which probably was a massive undertaking in itself. And he now speaks across the country in different men's breakfasts and prayer groups, and he's a fabulous speaker. But in, in, that, in that distancing of himself from, his, from Coors Brewery, he knew he had to take care of a fundamental issue. And that was the man who murdered his father. So he found out where the man was imprisoned. He went to see him. And um, the man wouldn't see him at first. So he went back a second time and the man wouldn't see him. So the third time, he went and he said, listen, I want to see the man who killed my father. He said, I want to forgive him. Well, the warden that was there, or whoever the guy in charge was, went and told the prisoner. And you can look at the internet and find these names. The guy came out to see him. And I looked at him. And this is 20-something years at least since this man kidnapped and murdered his father. And Adolf Kors says on his CD, he says, I sat there and I told this man, I forgive you for murdering my father. He said, the man looked at him and he said, uh, why would you do that? And then Adolf Kors IV shares how it was only after he was one to live out the gospel in forgiveness that he could share the gospel verbally. And Adolf Course the Fourth had the opportunity to lead his father's murderer to Christ. And that makes most of my forgiveness issues look pretty small. Are you with me? He tells also that the gospel part of that would never have happened if he had not been willing to first live it out. And say, in the middle of all of his pain and questions, I forgive you. And I want to say to you, though it may be on a smaller scale, the same principle is true. They're not going to listen to what we're saying until we live out what he's telling us. I call upon you to forgive. Forgive. Endlessly. That's what we as disciples do. Would you today?
Would you forgive? I know you've got people in your brain. I got them. There's a face. There's a name. Maybe some of you got to write a letter today to someone. Maybe you've got to make a phone call. You may have to see someone in this room before you leave. You may want to see them even while we're in this room and say, you know, I just want to make things right. I'm sorry. But I urge you as your pastor not to let the day end until you have done everything possible to resolve any issues in your life relating to forgiveness. Your spiritual walk and this church's health is way too important. Do whatever it takes. Will you pray with me, please?